Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 276 of the Ask the Coach show, where Ping Skills helps you improve your table tennis. In this episode, we'll discuss being good against friends but bad in tournaments, preparing for matches, veterans versus state players, and table tennis flooring. Plus, we'll have all of our regular segments. I'm Jeff Plum, and as always, I'm joined by Super Coach Alois Rosario. Welcome, Alois. Thanks, Jeff. And uh, how are you this uh, morning in Melbourne, Australia? Yeah, I'm very good, thank you. Um, it is a bit cold, though. We're only like, you know, a couple of weeks away from summer, yet spring hasn't produced much warm weather at all. I know. I, mean, I bet you guys sitting overseas thinking of Australia, beautiful Warm sunshine, not here, not here in Melbourne. It's cold, yeah. cold, yeah, cold and grey skies and rain. Um, yeah, but hopefully soon. Apparently, someone said it might be thirty degrees uh, Celsius. That is uh, later on this week, so I'm hopeful. Yeah, no, they've they've downgraded it, Jeff. Sorry, oh, did too, they? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> More cold weather to come. That's it. Oh, no. Oh, well, you know, if this week's going to be cold, Alois, um, you better tell us about, uh, you know, some interesting days in history that might be, uh, you know, warm our souls. Oh, exactly. Well, um, today, today, actually, the, the 14th of November, um, was the birth of the teddy bear. Um, and, you know, lots of, uh, lots of, uh, interesting uh, ideas about its derivation, but they're all, all to do with uh, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, old Teddy Roosevelt, and uh, him n- not shooting a bear. Um, so, you know, out hunting, there's a few different versions, but, you know, out hunting, there's a bear, decided not to shoot it, um, and then um, later on, later on uh, a guy called uh, Morris Mitchum, Mitchum, um went and sort of made these little toy bears and called them teddy bears. So that, that's, that's the interesting fact today from, uh, from, uh, from today in history. But um, I did but, not know oh, about that, Alice. That is interesting. See, there you go. And, and you probably, you know, sleep with a teddy bear every night, right? So, <laughs> uh, um, so there's one for you, Jeff. Thanks. But uh, pro- probably, probably more interesting to our uh, listeners is um, – that uh, Jean-Michel Save has a birthday coming up on the 17th of November. So uh, Save, one of the absolute legends of um, table tennis, a lot to do with his longevity, but you know, in his heyday, made the final of the World Singles Championships as well. So, so no mug um, on the on the table in 1993. Uh, came runner-up in the World Singles Championships and also in 94 was a finalist in the World Cup. Um, and not Actually, 94 and 2003. So, um, um, yeah, some, some good scalps that he's got and also um, runner-up in the World Team Championships in 2001 with Belgium. So, uh, so um, a really long history um, in table tennis and announced his retirement just at the end of last year in uh, December 2015 so um so he was uh, 46 or something like that 46 years old that's yep. uh, yeah pretty old to be uh, to be still on the circuit and probably uh, uh, you know he uh, one of his biggest accolades and you know talking about longevity is that he played in seven consecutive olympics 
um, from 1988 to 2012. So 88 is when the Olympics uh, first began for table tennis. So he played in every Olympics up till 2012. So, um, yeah, an absolute legend of uh, of our sport and uh, his birthday coming up on the 17th of November. There you go. Well done, Jean-Michel Save. Yeah, as you said, fantastic career. You know, a lot of amazing achievements. Um, yeah, and, you know, and, brilliant um, player. Yeah, and, I mean, you know, I'll tell you how old he is. I played against him in, um, in 1987 at the World Championships in the teams event when Australia played Belgium. That was 1987, Jeff. That, that was so long ago. That was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> oh, dear. But, you know, time passes quickly. Yes, it does. It does indeed. <laughs> yeah, excellent. All right, now... Um, Alloys, what is the tip of the week? Yeah, so um, this is one that's come up recently for me um, with my coaching and um, and with a few players, and that's just the use of the thumb um, in table tennis and just how relaxed it needs to be, especially when you're doing um, strokes like the forehand push because if you've got that thumb tightened um, and if you've get a, got a bat in your hand, just, uh, just pick it up and... and and tighten your thumb as much as you can and then try to move your wrist back so that you're in a good position for uh, for the forehand push and you'll notice that it's really difficult to get that bat back in the right position to to get your bat facing your opponent but as soon as you release that thumb and relax the thumb you'll notice then that your wrist will also relax and it's easier to get that wrist back into a good position for the forehand push. So it's probably you know one of the uh, one of the parts of the grip we don't focus on a lot. But uh, yeah, it has come up a little bit recently, and I've found that uh, by getting that thumb a little bit more relaxed, it does help players to to turn that wrist back for that forehand push. Interesting. Yeah, and and I guess as you mentioned, this is more applicable for those short balls, is it, where you want to, like, adjust the angle of the bat a bit more? Yeah, that's right, especially the, the one that's close to the net um, and you're trying to come in close to the net and um, and once you do that, you do need to, to turn your wrist right back to get the bat facing in the right direction and to hit the and hit the, right at the back of the ball rather than on the side of the ball. Okay, interesting, yeah. So um, next time you get out on the court... Just pay a bit of attention to, you know, the pressure of your thumb and um, especially on those short balls and, yeah, try and relax it and uh, see if it makes a difference for you. Great tip, Alloys. Thanks, Jeffrey. Yeah. Now, let's try and talk about the drill of the week. Okay. And so it's sort of related. We're talking about um, today a drill that I like to do with players so that they're starting to recognise... Um, long balls and also practicing topspin off a backspin ball. So the drill uh, for this week is both players are pushing the ball, but they're both aiming to make a topspin. So it can be a forehand topspin or a backhand topspin, doesn't really matter, but they're aiming to make a forehand topspin. So as soon as someone makes a successful forehand topspin onto the table, that's the end of the point and the person that's made the topspin wins the point so by doing that it um, serves a few purposes one it starts to teach you the value of keeping the ball short on the table 
but then it also starts to help you to recognize that longer ball and then practice your topspin off that long ball as well. Um, a, a really useful and practical drill to use um, as you're starting to move forward and playing some more matches and and starting to be able to um, uh, implement that forehand topspin or backhand topspin off push in a match situation. Yeah, that sounds really good. And it seems like the ideal way to do this is as a game, I guess, Alois, where, you know, you play first up to 11 or something. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you can you can do it just as a drill as well where you're not scoring. So you, uh, both players pushing and um, both players trying to make a topspin onto the table. But, yeah, to get it up to that next level, use it as a game and uh, and you'll find that the intensity increases and it also puts you under a little bit more game pressure and uh, gets you closer to a game situation. Excellent. All right. So, yeah, everyone give that a go. Um, the drill of the week, short pushing uh, and trying to make the first topspin when the ball does come long. Uh, get out on the table and give it a go. Excellent. Now, Alois, there's been uh, some interesting tournaments happening lately, the Austrian Open in particular. What do we need to know about uh, the Austrian Open? Yeah, so the Austrian Open um, just finished uh, on Sunday, so yesterday for us. Um, so I like I like these sorts of tournaments because they're probably that next level of tournament um, to the to the you know the world championships and the major the really high level pro tour events um, because it really gets that next level of player to uh, compete against each other and to see you know who can get over the line who can win these tournaments so uh, so for me these are these are really interesting tournaments um, and the. The Austrian Open, the men's singles winner was um, Kenta, Kenta Matsudaira. So um, he um, ended up winning 4-2 against Hugo Calderano from Brazil. So Calderano um, played well at uh, in Rio at the at the Olympics, you know, with his home crowd behind him, um, and here has stepped up again. So Kenta um, ranked number 41 in the world, um, you know, and to – and to be able to win um, one of these a world tour events is is fantastic for a player that's um, in that sort of category. Forty one, Calderano actually up now at number thirty one in the world, um, so he's he's coming up uh, coming up quickly. But um, the semi finalists were uh, Benedict Duda from Germany and um, Muramatsu. Uh, yeah, Muramatsu from uh, Japan. So Duda ranked 67 in the world. Muramatsu ranked 37 in the world. Um, you know, Calderano 31, as I said. Kenta 41. So just matching it up with those sort of guys and and um, and you know seeing who can who can surge forward and take that next step. And even in the quarterfinals, you know, um, Kulay from uh, Ukraine ranked 38 in the world. Uh, Ruin Phyllis from Germany, 64 in the world. Uh, Kamala Chanta from India, 76 in the world. And uh, Ricardo Walther from Germany, 91 in the world. So, you know, for some of those guys, this is this is their standout uh, tournament so far. Um, and for Kenta, you know, it, this is a this is a real confidence boost for him as well. Yeah, certainly. Um, yeah, it's great to see, isn't it? Um, and, yeah, Chanter did well, as you mentioned. He's been around for quite a long time now, so good to see him still, uh, you know, pushing for 
um, you know, yeah. in these events. Yeah, that's right. And he was starting to be overtaken by a few of his uh, Indian teammates as well, but um, but just recently seems to have had a bit of a surge in form again. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I saw he, he took down uh, Chen Jianan, which is a good victory. Yeah, that was a that was a good win for uh, Chen Chianan oh, against Chen Chianan. That's right. The uh, um, I think he was uh, oh, not sure where he was seated, but he was seated up fairly high. So yeah. yeah. And um, the other interesting result I saw because you know being the Austrian Open, uh, uh, Chen uh, Weijing um, managed yeah. to win his first round four three really close alloys, and then just went down to Yoshimura. Again, 4-3, but losing 10-12 in the seventh. So that would have been bitterly disappointing in his home tournament to go down so closely there. Yeah, you can just imagine the crowd there, right? Absolutely. They would would have been all pumped up after his win against uh, Brozier from France in the first round. And and that was a 4-3. And then, yeah, just just going down, you know. So, yep, um, good tournament. uh, And I'm sure the crowd would have been going berserk in, uh, in Austria. Absolutely. And now, uh, what happened in the women's singles, Alois? Yeah, so the women's singles, our, our favourite, I suppose, Mima Ito, uh, took, uh, took the goods there, winning 4-0 against uh, Hamamoto, her countrywoman. So, uh, yeah, so, again, g- a good um, confidence boost for Ito, I think. You know, just uh, just stamping herself again on uh, on the world scene. Yeah, I um, think so, because there's a lot of pressure on her, like, you know, being so young to win that first uh, Pro Tour event that she won, and then just the pressure building, and then maybe, you know, people expecting too much from her too quickly. And so she's, yeah. you know, she hasn't just dominated, like obviously still continuing to have some good results, but, you know, winning another tournament here and the Austrian Open, it's a, you know, it's a good tournament. Um, yeah, it should really, you know, keep her confidence high. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. So she's, I mean, she's up at number 11 in the world, which, which isn't uh, too tardy. Um, Hamamoto, uh, number 36 in the world. So, you know, I, I think, yeah, just a, just still a, a good confidence boost for, uh, for Ito. And, you know, especially with um, Mew Hirano now breaking into the top 10 uh, by winning the World Cup, um, you know, this will just... Uh, I suppose in the J- Japanese country stakes, um, you know, it'll uh, it'll just keep uh, keep her on the radar as well. Yeah, certainly. And you know, it seemed pretty comfortable for for Mima Ito. Uh, her worst result was four one. She won most yep. of her matches four one, actually. Yeah, that's right. Yes, beat uh, beat uh, the Russian in the first round, Pro- Prokhorova, uh, then Silberson four um, one, then. Then playing, well, yeah, Ishigaki, um, again another Japanese player, four uh, one, Polkanova four uh, one, Hashimoto four one, but the final, bang, four nil. Yeah, very impressive. Uh, well done, Mima Ito. All right, good one, Alois. Uh, nice wrap up of the Austrian Open. I think that means it is time for the questions. Are you ready? I certainly am. All right. Now, um, first up, I want to talk about this question here because it's so common and it's from Carl. And he says, hi, my name is Carl. I've been playing table tennis fairly consistently for about a year and I'm in love with the sport. 
I seem to play fairly well against friends. However, when I get in a tournament setting, I seem to fall to pieces. Is there something I can do to conquer this problem? What do you think, Alois? Yeah, so uh, this is a big question, isn't it, Carl? And um, and I'm sure all of you listening out there have related to this at some point in your life of table tennis. So how do we uh, transfer those skills that we can display in training into the into the match situation? You know, everyone has felt it. They go out, they're trained like an absolute champion. They're hitting the ball cleanly. It, um, the ball's coming off beautifully. They're hitting the ball at, you know, 120 k's an hour. Um, and they're all going on. And then it can be the next day or it can be later on that same day. They go and play a tournament and suddenly all that super form seems to have flown out the window. So one of the one of the big things I think is just thinking about how we're training. So starting to think about um, what you're doing in your training situation. In your training situation, and a lot of the people, a lot of the players tend to do drills where they know where the ball is coming. If you know where the ball's coming, it gives you so much more time to set yourself up, prepare, um, and play that next ball. In a match, you don't know where the ball's coming. Your opponent is deliberately trying to make it difficult for you. So straight away, it's a completely different ball that you're facing at a different stroke that you need to play because you're no longer knowing where the ball's coming. You're no longer able to move um, straight away into that next position. You need to be watching, tracking the ball, and then reacting. So for me, that is one of the biggest things that we can do in the training situation to to take the next step. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Yeah, make your training more like your matches. And um, yeah, so everyone... Take that advice, go and uh, do some more drills where you don't know where the ball's coming. That's going to help a lot. But then I guess, Alois, there's also this uh, mental side where you might just feel a little bit more pressure and you might not think as clearly in the tournament because you're under that pressure. Is it yeah, any ab- advice for, for that situation? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, that that's the next step uh, for sure. So, so when we go into the tournament, no matter how much we uh, try to replicate that pressure in a training situation, there is always just that little step up of of expectation or pressure that we put on ourselves. So finding ways to deal with that is is the next big thing. Thinking about your emotional control or your emotional level when you're going into those uh, matches is really important. How do you you then um, find ways to calm yourself down is, is what you need to start to examine. You know, some simple things that you can start to think about are just a simple breath that you can take, a deep breath um, that calms yourself, um, gives you a little bit more time, and then starting to focus on the tactics of what you're going to do for the next ball. Um, we off, we also talked to you about pre-point routines, and we'll put some links on there um, about pre-point routines that we have on, on uh, pingskills.com that you can go to. So, so there are definite ways that you can start to deal with that pressure um, a little bit better as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I guess the thing to remember is that if you can do it in training, you can also do it in a match situation. So it's really a matter of just being able to focus on, you know, the execution of that skill and 
like you said, there's many techniques that, you know, might work better for some people or not, so you experiment with different techniques. But as long as you remember that if you can do it in practice, then you will be able to do it in the match, then that should give you some confidence. And then it's just a matter of not letting those distractions take your mind off the job and just focusing on the execution. Um, yeah, that's yeah. right. And, and, and just allowing your body to play the shots that it knows that it can play. Um, so... Yeah, that's and that's that's a that's a big step, big step. So, I mean, the other the other thing is that I hear a bit from um, our readers and on the Ask the Coach uh, questions as well is, you know, should I go to a club? Should I play in tournaments? The answer is yes. So, the more uh, that you um, interact with other players, the more that you play matches um, and put yourself in that tournament situation, or even you know just a, a local league situation, then the, the better you'll get at it. You know, the more chance you get to practice um, these techniques that we're talking to you about. So, so you know, always, if you've got the opportunity to go to a club, play against different players, take it. If you've got an opportunity to play in some, uh, play in a league or play in some tournaments, you know, take it. It's a big part of development. Great advice. Um, and great question, Carl. So thank you for that one. All right, next up is a question from Eugene who says... I want to ask you about a player who is seemingly weak, but able to beat or even challenge a state-level player. He says this player has no real slow, uh, no real strokes, seems slow and clumsy, but can beat a state-level player who has fast footwork, good attacks and good serves. How can you explain this? He says the penalty player is slow, clumsy and weak, but is you know his opponent a state-level player, but he's destroying the state-level player. How can this happen, Alloys? All right, so... Table tennis isn't a uh, isn't like gymnastics where you get marked on um, how good your strokes look. That's the first thing to remember. So, so when we talk about players being weak or strong, what we're probably looking at is just their um, technical prowess or how good their technique is. So, unfortunately, um, that doesn't count. It's all about how you win points. Now, these weaker players or the veteran players that you're talking about, you know, they they have a lot of skills um, that are probably quite hidden. So one is their ability to read spin. So they're putting the ball back on the table um, more often, better, perhaps lower. Um, they may not be attacking players, but they may um, have some real skill with placement or they may have some real skill with, be, with being able to... Um, to see the ball better and quicker so they're able to react to any of those faster balls that are coming from that state-level player. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it is such a fun game in that sense, Alois, because, yeah, you can um, you can win points just with deception. Um, yeah, table tennis is all about spin, and, you know, that's that's what's great about this game. You can play it from, you know, a young age... Right, you know, up till, you know, very old age. Yeah, that's right. And I, th- I think, um, you know, someone on our site has uh, has dubbed it the ping pong zone a little bit too. So and I think that's uh, very relevant here. So certainly have, have is. I'll put, a, I'll put a link into the show notes for everyone who hasn't seen that video. We've got a, a, a video or a ping pod where we talk about this so-called ping pong zone. So, um Yeah, if you haven't seen it, uh, take a look at that. Uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy it. All right, Alois. uh, Next question is from Joseph, who says, what type of floor is best suited for table tennis? 
Okay, so I'm a bit biased here. I love t- the Taraflex or the um, or the rubberized flooring. Um, so I find that it, it provides good cushioning on the feet, but also it's got good grip. Um, so for me, uh, um, yeah, the Taraflex flooring, when it's on top of a wooden floor, um, is the best flooring uh, for table tennis. Probably the next is is a wooden type floor, but the the big thing with wooden floors is they need to have a bit of grip on them. Often I see wooden floors where where um, they're allowed to get dusty, and as soon as they get dusty and dirty, then they're very slippery. Um, so uh, the grip for me is a really important part of what a good floor um, has. Um, the next thing to think think about is just those harder floorings. So, I mean, concrete, for example, is really hard on the on the feet and the ankles and the knees. So, you know, if you can stay away from that type of flooring as much as possible, um, I'd recommend that because it is it is really tough on the body if you're trying to um, if you're trying to play on a on a harder concrete type floor. So, yeah. So for me. The Taraflex or the rubberized um, surf- surface is probably number one, um, and number two is a wooden type flooring. Yeah, yeah I'd have to agree. Yeah, the Taraflex, the, yeah, it's just so consistent with the grip. Um, you've always got a lot of confidence; you're not going to slip. Um, and like you said, with some wooden floorings, you go to some clubs and it can just be, you know, really slippery. And there's nothing worse than playing on a really slippery uh, floor. You try and move around and you just lose your balance and so yeah, the, the yeah. Some um, some uh, gyms or um, sports halls just have that that uh, blue or green rubberized flooring as well, um, which is good. You know, the um, that they sometimes use for basketball courts, etc. Um, I like those. Similar similar to the Taraflex, they uh, they provide good grip um, and a little bit of sponginess underneath your underneath your feet. Yeah, certainly. And the wooden flooring can be good as long as it's, you know, kept clean and yeah, and you do have grip then then the wooden flooring can be good as well. But you see all the professional tournaments are all played with the Taraflex, so I guess that tells you that, you know, it really is, you know, the best option. Alrighty, thanks for that question, Joseph. And the next one is from a long time ping skiller, Filippo. And he says, on analysing the results uh, of the past years, except for the ones I've won or lost in three straight games, I've noticed that on average, I always lose the first game. So he's talking about playing in a league here, and he says it's only after he loses that first game that he starts waking up and playing his best, and he seems to need that first game to study his opponent. And he says it may be the fact that he's a bit older and he needs to warm up properly. But he just wants some advice, Alois, on, you know, how to get into a match more quickly. Yeah, so a couple of things, uh, Filippo. Um, One is you you mentioned in your question that you don't really have a a huge opportunity to warm up properly um, before um, a game uh, with, with that league situation. But even just taking a minute, 30 seconds, um, just to just to get the heart rate up, to start mobilising your legs and your arms before you um, get out onto the table, um, is 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 important and can make a real difference. The other thing is to start to get your head into the right um, space. So that you can do, um, you know, 
even 20 minutes before you're playing your, your match. Um, and you could even do it if you're having to umpire. So often in league matches, you need to umpire a match and then jump on and play. Um, while you're umpiring, you can you can start to get your head into the right space, start to th- um, think about uh, your opponent, start to uh, use a little bit of imagery to uh, to to imagine the the, uh, the points that you're going to play, and then once you start your match, then you're already um, into it. So you've got a little bit of a head start that way. So um, I mean, ideally, if you can do a, you know a, a five minute um, just warm up the body um, and then do um, some good hitting time. You know, five ten minutes at least before you go out to play your match. That'd be that'd be ideal. But in this situation, you know, just utilize those that short amount of time to mobilize the body and start to get your head um, into the right space. Yeah, good advice. And I particularly like the, you know, using the imagery. I think that's like an underutilized way to prepare, especially in this situation where you might not be able to get out onto a table beforehand. If you can just, you know, imagine yourself playing, you know, a few points and even, you know, using your arm to to uh, execute those strokes. I think that's, you know, a really valuable way to get prepared when you can't actually do an on-table warm-up. Yeah, so give it give it a go, Filippo. And uh, yes, always good to get questions from Filippo. Um, he was uh, one of our very very first Ping Skills members. So, uh, and I had the uh, had the uh, delight of actually meeting him in London at the London Paralympics in 2012, where he was um, a volunteer. So, um, yeah, greetings, Filippo. Indeed. All right. Next question is from Patrick, and he wants to know. How can you fix a rubber with bubbles on the middle of the rubber? What can you do here, Alois? Yeah, so uh, here, what Patrick's talking about is that the that the sponge and the rubber have actually come apart. Um, so this is it, this is a manufacturing issue, um, and basically, it's, you really can't um, fix that uh, because the the sponge and the rubber. Um, have become unglued. So, so when the rubber is manufactured um, in the factory, uh, they glue that top sheet, so the red or black sheet, onto the sponge, which is usually yellow or cream or sometimes green or other colours. But they glue that on and together. So, what's happened here is that the top sheet, the the red or black, is coming away from the sponge. Um, I mean, the only possible way to do it is to separate that top sheet and the sponge um, and then glue it all back on again, but it never quite works the same. So so basically, Patrick, if that has happened, and if it's happened um, in a very short amount of time, then you probably should talk to uh, the manufacturer or, or the person that you bought it from and just uh, point it out to them. Um the, the other type of bubble that you can get is a bubble underneath the sponge, so this, this between the sponge and the wood. So that is pretty easily fixable. That you can just take the rubber off the, the wood um, and then glue it down again. So uh, so that one's easily fixed, but the one that you have here is um, is pretty difficult. Yeah, and in between the sponge and the top sheet, I mean, that's you really need to replace that, don't you? Because that's just going to cause you all sorts of problems if the ball hits that bubble when you're trying to play a stroke. 
Yeah, that's right. The ball will just drop off, um, so you won't get as much uh, grip um, as you normally would. And and then the rubber's going to become inconsistent. And in theory, it's also illegal because um, it the rules say that the surface of the rubber has to be consistent. So, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And hopefully this isn't too much of a, an issue. Like you said, if you've got good quality rubbers, they should um, it shouldn't happen too often. No, that's right. It certainly, I mean, it should definitely last, um, you know, 30, 40, 50 hours at least. Yeah, indeed. All right, so sorry, sorry about that, Patrick. We don't have any solutions for you there, but, um, yeah, hopefully um, you don't get this problem too often. Excellent. All right, Alois, well, that wraps up show 276. Thank you again, everyone, for listening. Make sure you go to pingskills.com and check out our website, and as always, thank you, Alloys. Thank you, Jeffrey. And uh, yeah, I I hope uh, hope you're enjoying these um, these podcasts and uh, give us a bit of feedback. Indeed. So these are our audio podcasts. Make sure you also check out pingskills.com for our Pingskills show where we um, have a, a video format of the show and we'll have another one of those coming out uh, this week. So keep your eyes out on the website for that. Okay, thanks everyone. Until next time, keep enjoying your table tennis. Bye.